0: You know, it'd be easy for somebody that walked into a room like this or any other today and to hear the song that we just sang, standing on the promises of God, and to just simply make an assumption that I know what those promises are, because this is what I feel deep down within my heart that God would want for me, that God has in store for me, based on other things I've heard, based on other people who have told me certain things, or just based on how I feel right here. If you uh, have ever spent time in the New Testament, which is the second or the last third, really, of our our Bible that we have, one of the things we teach early on here in our children's classes is the pieces of that puzzle of the canon of Scripture and how they all go together— And the first four books of the New Testament, as many of you are aware, is called the Gospels. These are the accounts of Jesus Christ here in his time on earth. And they still do this in certain Bibles today, not all. But years ago, always, always in those first four books of the New Testament, the words of Jesus would be printed in red. Uh, Many of you are probably holding what's called a red-letter Bible this morning. There's a reason for that. The words of Jesus are otherworldly. They teach us things that, in some ways, are incomprehensible to us because it's not how we're programmed. We understand what the words mean, but we struggle with implementation. We struggle with how to be the person that he calls us to be. And so, over time, what has happened, especially in our Western culture, is that. We have taken a look at ourselves and asked ourselves what we want to be, and then taken this—oh, I just ripped out a part of my notes, that's cool—taken this as aggressive and say, this is what I want this to be for me. I'm going to make it mean what I want it to mean. So sometimes it helps to look at what Jesus didn't say, that we have been convinced as a culture, and even as a church, that he did. What he could have said, what he might have said, or what I've said that I think he said, but to truly embrace the power of what it is that he did say. Today, what I wanted to talk about, and I think this is the subject that I've, I've circled back to quite a bit in the last few years of my life, and so I know I'm not the only one, is what Jesus did and did not say about the subject of happiness and its role that it plays in our lives here on this earth. Because what I know about most of you, because I know this about myself, is that we want to be happy. Most of us, it seems this way from the outside for some people, but most of us don't have a desire to go through life completely miserable. Sometimes the look on your face fakes us out, and we think that's what you're shooting for. But most of us don't have that desire to just be miserable on this earth. But, so, so what I want to do is look at what, what the Bible does say and what it doesn't say about, about happiness this morning. Because there's a laundry list of things that Jesus did not say. That our culture here in the United States might be telling us that it did. Such as... Uh, did Jesus did not say to his apostles, go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. Jesus did not say that. He did not say, whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves, avoid the cross, and follow your heart. No, he did not say that either. Today I want to look at John's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 8. And we're going to look look at a story that in some Bibles has an asterisk beside it. There is some contention amongst all the pieces of historical Scripture that we have put together over time, over all the councils in Carthage and Trent, that made up the canon of Scripture that we have today. These 66 books that we have. And so there's a good chance that if you have a more modern translation of Scripture, right above John chapter 8, there is something written in italics. This says something to degree of some of the earliest manuscripts do not contain this in whole for this period of verses. But the reason that it was chosen to be included in the Bibles and the reason it's still there instead is because, number one, it is found in other pieces of historical literature. But number two, because it does not contradict or counteract anything we see in Scripture. There's some literature out out there you may have heard of called apocalyptic literature, and it's not the apocalypse like we think of. It's books that are not found in the Christian uh, Protestant Bible that are found in the Catholic Bible. And for the reasoning of modern Christianity, it was because they felt that these books lied in conflict with what we have that, we, that was determined to be Scripture. It was determined to be canon. And so what we do know for certain is that this exists in certain places and it does not contradict with anything else in Scripture. And chances are most of you have read this your whole life and didn't know anything that I just said. And you've never blinked twice about it because it is consistent with everything else that Jesus said. And I think it's an important story for us to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 2. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, Jesus, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. So pause for just a moment. I think it's helpful. One of the things I was taught when when reading pieces of Scripture like this is to try to visualize the moment. And not just read it, but try to visualize the moment. And so uh, we know that Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. But for our purposes of our conversation, it's a large public place. Jesus is is teaching, and this woman, the way the Scripture words it is that she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, we don't know how this exactly plays out in that statement. It could be that someone had caught her earlier on and is now bringing her as an accusation. But if they actually caught her in the moment, there's a couple of other questions that if we had more time we would look into, one of which being, where is the man? Why is she the only one that's being condemned in this moment? But number two, she was probably brought into this teaching area, this very, very public place, wearing very little. Probably the most shameful moment of her entire life. What's interesting is that these men, though, did not care about her. This wasn't about her. This wasn't about the act that she was caught in. It was using her as a tool to get Jesus Look at the second half of verse 3. It says, They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5, The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And so this move puts Jesus in what we would call a no-win situation. Why? Because according to the law of Moses, this woman was guilty. And according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned to death. The law of Moses said that this is what was supposed to happen. So Jesus is in a tough spot because if he agrees with the accuser and says, yes, go ahead and kill her, he loses his reputation that he has built as a, in a lot of ways, a new religion. A new connective tissue to God where grace and love and mercy are at the center of it. So if he agrees with the accusers, not, and he's not disagreeing with what she says, with the, what they said she did, he's just, for a moment, think about if he disagreed with the sentence. So that would be option number one. Option number two is that if, on the other hand, he says, no, we're, uh, you know, we're not going to do that in this situation, let's make an exception here, he's now breaking the law of Moses. So it's lose-lose. He, he is in a no-win situation. So picking back up at the end of verse 6, it says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is interesting. They ask him a question, and he definitely does not respond. (laughs) Instead, he does something completely different. And this is an interesting piece of where language comes into play. There is a word, if, if any of you know just what the interlinear Bible is, you have to have no biblical uh, background in theology to understand what the interlinear Bible takes every word in Greek and gives you the definition in English and puts them side by side. So there is a word here that is used nowhere else, nowhere else in all of Scripture. The root of the word is graphing, which just means to write down. So that's what we have here. But if you were to go look this up, and any of you could could Google this and see this, there is a word here called katagraphen. It means something different, it means to write down a record against. So, when you think about that in the context of what they're saying, there has long been a debate, and people always want to assume what was Jesus writing in the sand? Was he drawing doodles? There are actually later manuscripts not included in our canon that suggests that Jesus was writing down the sins of the accusers. Now this is not, I'm not saying that's what he said, but it is an interesting concept because the actual exactness of the translation is to write down a record against someone. So is he writing down her sins? Is he writing down the sins of those that were accusing her? Whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, it was something against someone. And just for the sake of visualization, you can think about either one of those things. So we see in verse 7, when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, <laughs> language is important. It goes beyond just without sin, because he's talking to who? He's talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So he goes a step further, and it says not just if you don't have any sin, but the actual literal translation is if you've ever even thought about sinning. So if you've never thought about committing sin, committed sin in your heart, okay, now you can throw the first stone. Whoever is not only without sin, but even if you wanted to sin. Now, I'll be the first to admit my own guilt in this room. Not only have I sinned, I have thought about sinning that I did not actually do. That's a little too real for some people that they don't, we don't want to think about all the the thoughts that we have that roll through our heads. But if we can't admit that we struggle not just with our actions, but with our thoughts, then we're lying to ourselves and those around us. So he's making the point that even when your actions may outwardly look like they're connected to God, your hearts aren't always in the same place. So if you're perfect in heart and in action and in mind and in deed, now you can throw the first stone. So picking back up in verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here is what Jesus did not say. Go now and do whatever makes you happy. Go now and continue living life just as you have before. Jesus did not say, go now and follow your heart. Jesus did not say, do whatever makes you happy. Jesus said, where are your accusers? Well, no one is here. No one is here to condemn me. And he says, then neither do I. Go now, not go later, not think about it, not go home and ponder it, but go now. And this is your action Leave your life of sin. This is not a condemning statement. This is not a judgmental statement. This was full of love and you can hear it in the urgency of his word. Go now. Don't wait. I am offering you freedom from sin. If you are willing to walk away from it, where you don't have to live in shame anymore, where you don't have to be drugged half naked into the city courts... That there is a better option for life out there than the one you have chosen to live up until this point. Go now, don't wait. You don't have to live for something that we're going to circle back to in just a moment. But just consider for a moment the lower things of this world. The things that we think really matter and have weight. Because why is it that so many of us, myself wholly and fully included, give in to temptation so often? What is the root of? Reason behind it because it's not the temptation itself, it's what the author of Hebrews tells us. He says that sin is full of fleeting pleasure, sin is normally something desirable. You could say, in the moment, it's fun. It's entertaining. It fills a void that we have within ourselves. But oftentimes the reason we are tempted to commit sin is because it's something that some part of us wants to do. That we are drawn to in our carnal human nature. Sin promises satisfaction, but that satisfaction comes at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to every single one of us. Number one on your outline this morning is this, that sin falsely promises true happiness. But only when we disobey God. In other words, happiness will come at the cost of that relationship. Sin, temptation, it promises happiness. It promises it's going to be good. It promises it's going to make you happy. You're really going to enjoy it. But it all comes at the cost of disobedience to God. If you have any empathy in your heart, you could try for a moment to put yourself in the position of the woman. Chances are she probably didn't wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to be a home wrecker. Chances are it was a series of small decisions, seemingly innocent, one thing, one insignificant thing, one into another, that led her to a point where she was barely dressed. In the city center. How did she get there? Because sin promises satisfaction, sin promises happiness, but only at the cost of disobedience to God and with eventual pain. So, why do do so many of us end up in similar situations today? Maybe not drug out by our accusers in the center of whatever our life revolves around, but The bottom line is because we make compromises. We live in a culture of relativism. And I talked about this briefly in my class this morning. It's the belief that everything is okay, that everything is relative. In other words, there is no such thing as absolute truth. You hear it all the time in our world today. You live your truth. I'll live my truth. Uh, I'll, I'll find what makes me happy. You find what makes me happy. But here's the fundamental problem with that, when there is no absolute truth, then truth is happiness. Meaning on your, on, your, on your outlines, when happiness becomes what's most important, it also becomes what's true. That is the standard for right and wrong in people's lives who are directed strictly by impulse happiness. The bottom line of, of that kind of life is that if it makes me happy, it must be true. It must be what's right. It must be good. And if it doesn't make me happy, it must be bad. It must be false because that is how I am determining what is right and wrong. And the root cause of that is because somewhere deep down, we have gotten the miscontortion of scripture that happiness and holiness are against each other. That we somehow have been convinced that God has no desire for us to be happy. Not at all. It's that we have messed up the definition of happiness. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, when talking about God's care and concern for his people. He says, if you then, though, and he's talking to us, he's talking to his listeners, if you then, though you are evil, know how good the gifts are that you give to your own children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So we find ourselves at odds with this, well, I want to be holy, but I don't want to be unhappy. And if I have to be like Jesus, it means I'm going to be unhappy. Because we have allowed our culture, our world, our influences to tell us what true happiness is. And it's always brief. It never lasts very long. That's why the author of Hebrews calls it fleeting. Because it can't sustain us. It can't be the thing that carries us. There's an illustration Long used about a fish. A fish that is placed on a beautiful tropical beach. And, and it becomes, can, is, is the fish happy on the beach? No. He's dying. Okay, so well, what, what can make the fish happy? Well, I, I got a lot of money. So I'm going to put a bunch of money down here by the little fish. A lot of money. A whole lot. More than he needs. Is the fish happy now? No. Okay, so it's a beautiful tropical setting. Let's have a a fish party. I want to invite all of his fish friends. Are they happy? No, because they're all collectively dying together. So maybe we take some fish selfies and they go viral because there's a bunch of fish on the beach (laughs) trying to have a party. They're still unhappy. They're dying. The reason is because they were not created for the beach. Oftentimes when we think about our reasons for unhappiness, it is because we are seeking it in places that we were not created to find it. If you find yourself wondering why you aren't happy, ask yourself, who are you living for? What are you living for? Because realistically, we need to lower our expectations of what this earth is going to give us. When it comes to the hole that we have in our hearts. It was never intended to be filled by any one person or any one thing here on this earth. Next thing on your outline is that holiness and happiness are falsely pitted against each other. That you can't have one without the other. That happiness only comes when I'm living outside of God. But the truth is holiness is not at all mutually exclusive of happiness. They are very, very related. And this is why. Happiness comes by way of holiness. So hear me out. Holiness for us as Christians is the way to true happiness and joy. They are not mutually exclusive. They are united. They are connected at the hip. Look at the way that King David shares his perception in Psalm chapter 16 verse 11 of his relationship with God. He says, you make known the path, to me, the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures. Not temporary pleasures, not fleeting pleasures, not momentary pleasures, but you, God, fill me with eternal pleasure at your right hand. And that's why when this woman, who was as guilty but no more guilty than any of us are, When she was caught in this most shame-filled moment of her life, this is why Jesus did not look at her and say, I'm so ashamed of you. After all I've done for you, this is how you've chosen to repay me. You're pathetic. Ever had somebody say that to you? I have. did not communicate love to me. It communicated disgust and disdain for me as a human created in the image of God. That is not at all what Jesus said to her. Instead, he said, Go be free. Free yourself from the burden of sin. Go and sin no more. Go walk in truth. Go leave the lower things of this world that you are looking for fulfillment and happiness in and seek them in me. Now, he doesn't say that explicitly to this woman. But what he says is sin no more. That He's the other option that we have to walk hand in hand with Christ. And we look in different places for it. So think just for a moment about where we look for happiness and fulfillments. For some people, it's alcohol. For some people, it's drugs. For some people, it's relationships that they should not be searching for happiness in. For some people, it is the demon of pornography. For others, it is something that sounds so innocent as shopping. But in fact, they pour themselves into it, hoping that maybe the next thing that they buy will make them happy or give them fulfillment, even though it's not something they would say maybe out loud. Perhaps it's a critical spirit where we feel better in dealing with our own low self-esteem of tearing other people down in order to build ourselves back up. But as promised, it did not deliver. It did for a minute. It was fleeting, but it did not deliver. And then we find ourselves exposed in the city court in our brokenness. We have looked everywhere for fulfillment except the one place where it can be found. And I know beyond a shadow of doubt that in this room or listening online this morning, someone needs to hear and be reminded of the faithfulness, the goodness, and the grace that is available to you through Jesus Christ that is stronger than your brokenness and stronger than my sin. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken me which is, except which is common to all of mankind. I have gone through everything you have gone through. I have experienced it and I have been exposed to it. And God is faithful. He will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I can bear. But when you and I are tempted, He will provide a way out so that we can endure it. Blessed. Blank on your outline this morning is this that every temptation is an invitation. I heard it many times, so that's not me, but it's no less true. Every temptation is an invitation, it is an opportunity, I think is the way I prefer to hear it personally. When you are faced with temptation, whether you are eight years old or 80 years old, we all have a choice. Do we turn to the sin, or do we turn to the one who will free us from it, who is offered already to free us from it, that gives us a way out? Because he doesn't look down at us, even when we struggle, even when we are imperfect, and say, I'm ashamed of you. I'm embarrassed by you. So instead, go find your own truth. He says, no, truth is found in me. Forgiveness is found in me. Wholeness and fullness is found in me. He says, sin, no, more. We were created to walk in our relationships with God. Not just, in, not just in his image, but in a desire to have this bond with us that is really incomparable to anything else we experience. God cares very much about our happiness. Just not in the places we're looking And that's because holiness and happiness were never intended to work against each other. In fact, growing in holiness only increases our happiness. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, Let us show the people of the world who see our religion as slavery that it is a delight and a joy instead. Let our gladness proclaim that we serve a good master. Our desire for happiness isn't an impulse to put to death. It is one to embrace because it drives us to Christ. It helps us fight temptation and testifies to the world of our Savior's surpassing worth. We serve a God who will fill us, who will give us not just the cravings of our heart, but will fill it with something far beyond what we are trying to put there ourselves. But we have to go. And not go when you, when you feel like you've done enough sinning. He tells this woman, don't go back to the man you were caught in adultery with. He says, go now. Leave this place and turn your life to me. Go go leave this place and sin no more. It's a a simple statement. Hard to do. But if you look back over the wholeness and fullness of your life and you ask yourself in all honesty, have I found fulfillment and happiness And contentment and satisfaction that lasted anywhere except in Jesus Christ. If you're honest with yourself, you already know what the answer to that question is. Fleeting and momentary, but at the cost of disobedience, eventually it brings us pain. I love the fact that I don't have to be unhappy in order to walk hand in hand with God. And I think it, maybe some of you also grew up in a, in a time and in a place where that was, felt like it was a necessity. That these are all the things that you have to avoid. And yes, there are certain things we do need to avoid. But here's how, where you get to be instead. That was the part I wish I had heard more. This is where you find joy. This is where you find your happiness that God doesn't want you to live apart from. Just don't looking in hollow places that will pull you away from me. Find your joy in me. If we can help point you to that joy, if we can encourage you, if we can go that way with you as a church and help you begin that relationship for the very first time, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?